Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. From Vice Australia, this is Extremes with me, Julian Morgans. This is a show that explores the far ends of human experience. And today, we're hearing from a guy named John Rusnak. He's a former banker who was done for embezzling around $700 million dollars. It was snowing. It was the most beautiful Christmas day. I mean, I should have been just ecstatic and thankful to be spending Christmas with my wife, but I was—I couldn't—I couldn't help myself. The market was flying around. At that point, I was short of the dollar against yen, and the market was steaming ahead. And I just got very drunk. I had been drunk most of the day. At that point, in the in the midst of the dinner, I was my lo- my total losses were probably over six hundred million dollars. At that point, there were still more losses to come, but. Um, But the vast majority were had been, were had been happening in, the, in that week or two beforehand. So, um, you know, I, I realized in, in my own head that I was never going to make it back. In 2003, a guy from Baltimore named John Rusnak briefly became famous for pulling off one of the biggest cases of bank fraud in U.S. history. It started because he made some bad investments, but rather than owning up to it, he doubled down and tried to win back the bank's money. Finally, after he was in a $700 million hole, he came clean to his wife and then the federal authorities. And then he spent the next five and a half years in jail. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about coming clean. Is honesty always this amazing, transformative experience? Even if surrendering means going to jail? I grew up in um, Bristol, Pennsylvania, which is part of Bucks County, just north of Philadelphia. I always did really well in school. I sort of knew from a very early time that that was an area that I could not only prove my worth to myself, but prove to other people that I was smarter than them and therefore valuable. I've always had a good head for numbers, and I've always been attracted to games of chance. So like card games and dice games, all sorts of gambling. I would overcomplicate them with big math models and try <laughs> try to win the world, uh, which was fun as a kid. But uh, uh, again, it sort of led down this path. I went to college and I was very good with computers. And um, I went to work one summer on an internship with a friend's father at a bank in Philadelphia. And he just gave me an opportunity. I worked in the computer area. The computer area sent me to the trading room and. Uh, told me to help them because they had all these new computers they had bought and they weren't sure what to do with them. So I basically programmed the trading software for the trading team. I had no idea that those guys were, you know, as we would say back then, the big swinging dicks who made all the money. I had no idea about that. So later after I got out of college and they offered me a job in the trading room, I turned it down initially until someone smacked me upside the head and said, you have to do that. I was in a huge trading room and I had a lot of capital to trade with and I was on a proprietary desk meeting. I just sat 
did whatever I wanted. I had no specific job responsibilities. I could invest in whatever I wanted. But me being who I was at the time, I thought that I was smarter than him. And I thought it'd be more befitting for me to have his job and him to have mine. So that didn't work out very well. And um, I knew some guys who worked for Allied Irish. Allied Irish had bought a bank in Baltimore called um, First National Bank of Maryland. So they brought me on as a proprietary trader. There were times when I was trading um, and when things wouldn't work out where I would just react really viscerally and emotionally. I wouldn't make calm and calculated decisions. I'd trade angry, as a lot of guys would say. It just seems like a different world back then. I would never do this stuff now, but it was nothing for me to break the screen on the, on the computers or scream at somebody or throw my phone across the room or do whatever I felt was appropriate. Everybody was doing drugs. We did, I did coke in the office all the time, and a lot of people around us did it as well. We'd have big parties where we did it. And it wasn't socially acceptable to my wife, I'll say that, but, or her friends or the friends we had you know, outside the financial markets. But inside the financial market, it was completely accepted. Cocaine is the, probably the ultimately effective sin. I mean, it, um, it's transformative. And I would say that the attraction that uh, cocaine provided was uh, you know, similar to um, the movie Limitless, where I really felt like I had no limits when I was using that drug. It would encourage me and make me feel like I was super smart and had all the greatest ideas in the world. In my head, it worked perfectly to make me exactly who I wanted to be. Now, if you had witnessing being this, you know, uh, I'm sure we looked like quite foolish. But it's it's like a lot of mistakes. Like you, you convince yourself in your head that it does one thing when it's actually doing something else. You know. Meanwhile, I'm at a fancy restaurant, running off to the bathroom every ten minutes, and got somebody standing in front of the door, blocking the door so nobody will come in. And and then I come back, and I'm so arrogant, out of control. There was a point where I had lost a significant amount of money that I knew I couldn't report. We had a trade that was done and recorded in our operational books incorrectly. It was a derivative product. Instead of us um, buying the right to buy a call, we had actually bought the right to sell, which screwed up our whole position and the market moved immensely. It was my fault because I should have been accountable to check it. It's something I could have walked away from if I wanted to just get fired and move on to the next thing. I could have just gone and said, listen, I screwed up, I'm out of here. But my pride let me think that that wasn't even a possibility. So that led to this uh, just increase in risk and increase in aggressiveness and an increase in anger to try to make it back. And I often tell people it, it was more like a um, drunk guy you see at the casinos who bets $25 on red, loses, and then bets 100 and then loses again and bets 200 and loses again and bets 500 and Next thing you know, he's got his, you know, life savings on red, hoping that eventually red will hit. When it really came to roost was when I had to start entering in fake trades and uh, basically telling my back office not to confirm them. And I had to build relationships with our auditing group and oversight group so that they wouldn't look too, too deeply into what I was doing. Intimidation was involved in some of that. I had a big portfolio in uh, Swiss francs and uh, one of our audit and control guys wanted to share it with um, the trading desk in London because they wanted to sort of audit the activity because they, they had seen us in the market trading a lot. 
I basically just explained to the guy, I said, you don't understand how the financial markets work. If I reveal to them what my positions are, that gives up my advantage in the market. People are going to know what I have on. I'm like, if you want to get fired, go ahead and send it because the first thing I'm going to do is go to the, go to the treasurer and the CEO because that's just not going to work. Un- unfortunately, this is the problem of being a jerk because it's often quite effective. A couple months before 9-11, I'd really come to this conclusion that if I was going to get out of this, it was going to have to be dramatic, that I was going to have to vastly increase my risk and make a lot of money back really soon. The bank uh, was considering selling, and there were a whole bunch of due diligence teams, and they were in looking around the records, and I knew that they, they were going to start to look a lot more closely. So I started to think to myself that I needed to figure this out right away. When 9-11 happened... Um, you know, I had an open line into Cantor Fitzgerald, who was on the, on the, you know, the floor where the plane hit. So it was an awful day because I, I somebody's my phone just my phone line just cut out, and some of my buddies were clearly dead from the, you know, the very minute, and a whole bunch more were in different banking institutions and had to get out. And in the middle of that, I started thinking like, I'm long, like a billion dollars, and the dollar is going to get whacked, and no one's trading because everyone's just in total shock. And um, I stayed there and got all our banks together that, that serviced our accounts. So you, you got to get a market up. Like, we got to keep trading. I need to sell. And the guys were mostly in New York. And I said, John, this is ridiculous. Like, I got to go home, you know. But I was just overwhelmed by the fact that I really have to fix this. And, and it has to be fixed really soon. And I can still do it. So Christmas time, 2001. My wife loves New York. We lived there for a long time before we moved to Maryland, and we went back up for Christmas. And, of course, uh, traveling to New York for me was an excuse to be entertained and taken care of by all the people who were who profited from my trades. My volume was really large, and guys got a cut based on how much I traded with them. So there was an unending supply of people that would pay for me to stay in the Waldorf and take me to my favorite restaurants and send Linda and I out, you know, run around in limos and all that kind of stuff. So it was Christmas and we did the typical Christmas stuff. We didn't have the kids with us that year. We were in the village in Il Molino, which is this absolutely fabulous Italian restaurant that I really like and they make their own grappa there and I've been drinking all day, you know, we're traveling around. I'm not driving because I have a limo with us and my broker from one of the big banks and one of his guys who executes a lot of my trades and my wife's there and uh, I realized in my own head that I was never going to make it back. You know, here's this beautiful day, and I've wrecked it. My wife loves me very much, but is sitting across from some drunken idiot who's babbling about market fluctuations and being encouraged by these knucklehead brokers he has around him all the time. I kept from breaking down and crying at the table, but, uh, but you know, when we went back to the hotel that night, I tried to talk to Linda a little bit. Uh, didn't really share with her the magnitude of the issues, but, but just some of the stress that I, that I was... Uh, that was growing and building and the anger that was building. So I, I started to set out a plan about how I would how I would take this thing down. Like I would either make one more big push, which I ended up doing, or just completely give it up. I tried one more push, I reversed all my positions, went long, and that's just it made it everything worse, you know. I've been betting on red, 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 and black kept coming up. I finally changed the black and red started to come up. I was now making really bad decisions that weren't intelligent at all. So I held them off for a little bit. Then on Friday, I, I just basically packed up everything I had. I remember one of the guys I work with looked at me in the in the elevator and said, why are you taking all that stuff home? <laughs> he said, you're starting to worry me. I'm like, don't worry. I'll tell you when you need to be worried. And um, I left and went home and picked my wife and my kids up. 
and uh, we went for a, a weekend away out in western Maryland and there's a little ski resort or something out there and uh, we went out and I knew that um, I knew that by the time I came back on Monday that it would be exposed they had a whole team in to come and find him I knew they were gonna find them so I knew I had a very limited amount of time in which to come clean I basically told my wife over the weekend I just told her that I was effed and that I had made all these these ridiculous mistakes and I couldn't get out of them. I think a lot of people were aware that I had exceeded my limits in the past and I had traded and, and lost money and kind of ducked it for a couple of days here until I could make it back, that uh, they weren't staggering amounts. But this was like a recurring theme over months and years where I just hit all these things. And she just, um, she was shocked, but also um, really thankful to find out why I had been so angry, really thankful to find out why I had been such a mess. When I fully explained it to her, she told me that she would stay with me, um, but only if I came clean to the authorities and told them exactly what I had done. And um, that was not something I was thinking of, to be honest with you. I was not thinking of being repentant. I wasn't thinking of sharing all these terrible truths with the federal authorities. And I certainly was not intent on testifying everybody, on anybody because I, I had grown up in a culture that, you know, we don't rat out our friends, you know. I went in and... and uh, I sort of struck a deal with them, and I told them everything I would do. I wasn't, I wasn't committed to telling them what other people would do, but I was content to tell them what I had done to wrap myself out, so to speak. And, uh, you know, initially, the consequences looked pretty severe. It was around the time of the Enron guys, you know, who ultimately got 25 years. I thought I was looking at somewhere in the 20 to 30-year range. So I, I was frightened, but oddly calm. I was really glad that it was over, and I wasn't carrying the weight of all, that, all those lies any longer. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey, if you're enjoying this podcast, then you need to go and check out Anxiety Hour. This is another one from Vice Australia, and it's hosted by my good friend, Wendy Seifert. The show consists of some really honest, really moving conversations around mental health, and Wendy gets all sorts of really great people lots of public figures on the show to, to talk about their own demons. Have a listen to this segment right here. I wonder if millennials are just more depressed and anxious or if we're just talking about it more. I really don't know if our parents are just as sad as us or if, I don't know, maybe we're just doing something wrong. John got seven and a half years prison, but he ultimately served only five and a half for good behavior. But before he began his sentence, he had to deal with the fact that he was suddenly front page news across the whole country. So John, I think this was what, about 2003 when it all came out and, and you were really this briefly famous person. Talk to me about the media uproar. I mean, were you surprised that people cared so much? I didn't expect it, I'll say that. I, mean, I thought it was a contained problem in a small, bank that was 
devastating and really bad and would have a sig- significant consequence on my, you know, that I'd be incarcerated. But I didn't expect it to be a national story. The problem is that it hit at a time when people were really ripe for those, uh, the greedy Wall Street story. But it was a shock. Um, I got a call the morning after I went in to see the FBI agents um, from, what's that, Irish National Public Radio. I think they call it IRE. I just couldn't believe that they knew about it. I was I was devastated, and I, I you know, a, an hour later, I looked at the window, and there were vans, media vans everywhere. It was sort of constant for a couple of days, and then after that, it would die down. But if I went out and walked down to the village in our town, I'd also, you know, I usually get caught and down there, and uh, I realized I just couldn't go out. You know, there's going to be people around, and uh, if I had to go down for, uh, you know, um, a court appearance, a lot of times I'd take the kids to school first. And, uh, and they really, really desired pictures of the kids, and we try to keep them shielded. Why the kids? What is it about kids that are going to improve your story, like to tell a story of this, this bank fraud? Well, they got on this angle of like, here's this guy who pretended to be such a nice fellow and was on the school board and involved in an arts organization and had kids and a nice wife, and all the while he was this sociopath who was actually stealing people's money and acting terribly. I, I suspect there's some rooted truth in that, but but uh, it, you know it's certainly not exactly what the case was. And I think their their desire to know about my wife and uh, about my kids and my family and our house and things like that were. I think it can sometimes be the story, the part of the story that sells. You know. Do you remember what your first day at prison was like? Yeah, it was bad. I mean, I see this still happening. A lot of things that happened to me, I see that they happened to the kids that we're working with and uncuffed. Like, I went in, um, a self-surrender. They put me in a big uh, group cell with a bunch of young kids who had just been shipped in from New York down to Fort Dix. And the kids were all 21, 22, and I was a little bit older than that. And I was sitting in this, like, uh, gang holding cell just thinking, no one's telling me anything. I'm like, all right, well, this is it. What am I going to sit here for five and a half years? Is this how it goes? Am I locked behind this, you know, in this little cage with 20 other guys for five and a half years? And I was really despondent. I mean, I thought, there's no way I can do this. I don't even know what to do. I'm just like, what am I going to do here? In the middle of the night, they sort of pulled us out and took us to another part of the jail and assigned us a, pl- a place to sleep. And What was your cell like? Well, I went through a lot of different prisons. I was in probably seven or eight different prisons, and a lot of them had a different accommodations my first night was a dorm room setting which is um some people might think is more um more accommodating and and closer to like regular living but really isn't a cell is is a value in jail because you can lock in that cell and not have to have your head on swivel 24 7 you don't have to worry about what's going to happen at night but uh the 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 um the open tier places can be a a lot more dangerous um so i had like an open tier place but i realized that i could go out and walk around and uh and they had a library, and I uh, quickly got a book, and somebody gave me a Bible, and uh, I realized the the consequence of my incarceration was going to be deprivation of contact with my family. It wasn't going to be that this was some horrendous torture. It just was going to be that I had lost all my privileges in society, you know, that I was an outcast. And how did you feel your time? You know, I just imagine in prison there's just never enough stuff to keep you occupied. I mean, did you find yourself a job or did you start working out? What exactly did you do with all of those hours? 
Yeah, I mean, it was important to stay active for sure. You know, I was much younger then, and I was in good shape. I'm an old fat guy right now, but um, you know, I, I worked out like pull-ups, push-ups, and dips. That's all we did was pull-ups. We did uh, pull-ups in the showers. We did uh, push-ups in the you know the TV rooms, and we did uh, we did uh, dips in the, by the laundry machines. And they had a place you could run, um, so I ran and, and worked out uh, continuously. Actually, when I got out, I was in great shape, and I pledged to my wife I'd always be in that shape and. Uh, she's forgiven me for not uh, standing up to that, <laughs> but but yeah, I spent a lot of time working out. I spent a ton of time reading, and then um, I had some periods where I was in um, like segregated housing and secluded, where I was able to read the Bible a lot. Really spent uh, spent a lot of time in prayer and a lot of time uh, kind of contemplatively reading the Bible and trying to discern some some meaning in it. Um, it was really in a lot of ways. I, sometimes I joke around and call my incarceration my ascetic time in the wilderness. Um, it was, uh, you know, kind of like a monk's life, and um, I really there were there were times, believe it or not, um, where I was actually quite content in jail. You know, not happy to be missing my wife and kids, but but uh, but happy to have time to really contemplate my life and set a broad plan and define success in a new way and and just learn how to relate to people. What was it? What was it like? You know, getting visits from your from your wife from your kids while you're in, incarcerated like that. Yeah, that was bad. I mean, you know, it's like, I, and I see that even with the kids we deal with today. Like, they really don't want to have, they do want to have their families visit, but they don't. And I feel the same thing. Like, it was great to have them come to see me, but it was so awful when they left. <clears throat> and I had to sort of manage that. We all went through the same thing. We're like, okay, you have a visit. That's not a time for complete joy. Like, let's go out, put our best face on, see the wife, see the kids, uh, be encouraged, um, encourage them, tell them everything's okay. And then, uh, and then when they left, just totally collapse. <laughs> you know? Like that was the time you really didn't want to bother a guy when he came back from a visit. That was the highest chance that you get in a fight with someone. Yeah, yeah, I can I can understand that. Something else I thought was interesting was that you said at first when you told your wife, you know, she was very calm. She was uh, quite philosophical about it, I guess. Uh, I'm guessing there was a point where she was pissed off. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this thing started to come out and like. Just the longevity of the the sin or the crime and and easiness with which I could lie was um, unnerving to her, you know. Like so now, now I'm telling her that I'm gonna change my life and I want to be the person that she married and I want her to remember back to how much I loved her in the beginning. Well, is that just another series of lies? You know, is that can I actually can I actually trust these promises? So like a lot of things, you know, you need to restore your reputation and you need to restore, you know, by works and deeds and not by words. Do you, do you remember a time where she'd ask you, hey, John, is everything okay? Like, are we okay? And you'd just lied to her face? Yeah, yeah, a lot. I mean, I, I was doing a lot of stupid stuff and not coming home. And, you know, the big part of the drug culture and the drinking is being out all the time, you know. So I'd be like, well, what are you doing tonight? Well, I've got I've got a market dinner with my, you know, Merrill Lynch guy. Or I got a market dinner with my Citibank guy. Or <clears throat> meanwhile, we're just in some hotel, like, slugging martinis and doing coke and acting like 12 year olds um i didn't want her to know that stuff no i I don't think she'd have um, been thrilled about it when you basically lose 700 million in a market like that could you tell me what do you think the the tangible ramifications are for the shareholders or for the public just just in general sure i mean so you know it's 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 something um 
Now, as I say this, I'm not trying to say that I'm a good guy or not deserving of the consequences. I'm not trying to say there were no victims. But I was very thankful that I wasn't like trading a managed fund that had people's retirement money in it. I was using the bank's liquidity, their own money, as seed money to borrow more money from other banks and then trade with that. So the consequences were all to our shareholders and the, and the bank's liquidity. Um, it was such a big hit that there was a thought for a moment that the bank might fail. Really thankful that didn't happen because that would have hurt a lot more people. So the real ramifications to, to, to people were um, a lot of people that worked at the bank didn't receive their bonuses that year. Um, a lot of the operations that were sort of um, risky or on edge were shut down to make sure that there wasn't anything else unethical going on. A lot of the people that were either supervised my work or meant to supervise my work lost their jobs. So I, I definitely feel like that's something I'm really sorrowful about and and uh, and and have when I was able, you know, sought out forgiveness for those things. One thing that you know, one thing that I'm sure about is that I can only accept responsibility for the things that I did um, after. This all happened. They sold the bank to M&T. Uh, it's, it's called Manufacturers and Traders in Buffalo. And uh, the due diligence for that sale is what part of what turned up the losses. So they were going to sell the bank either way. I think this kind of Wolf of Wall Street culture is is a huge part of this story. I mean, it's it's definitely part of the story that that I find unexpected. Just to hear that Wall Street executives are actually behaving the way that Hollywood has always told me that they are. Can you just run us through this scene a bit? I mean, who who are these people? Yeah, well, you know, it's a it's a, in some ways it's like a fraternity boy network. You know, it's a lot of guys that trade in the markets that are uh, we used to call them. They're born on third base and they're sure they hit a triple. You know, these trust fund kids, uh, their dads have got them jobs and things. So there were a lot of guys like that in the market. And there are a lot of privileged kids who really wanted to um, you know to excel. Um, but then there were a lot of guys like me that came from more humble backgrounds and, and were there because of intelligence, not because of uh, pride of position. The, the other funny thing that relates to the drug story is that back then in the late 80s and early 90s, all the guys on Wall Street wanted to be gangsters. You know, that was back when Giuliani was locking up John Gotti and we all thought the gangsters were the coolest guys in the world. And funny, sort of symbiotic relationship, the gangsters also all want to be Wall Street guys. So um, there were tons of guys with um, connected guys that, that were hired into the market as brokers and traders assistants and different people that hung around the room primarily so that they could provide people with drugs and girls and whatever else. What was your weekly cocaine intake? What were you spending? Well, I wasn't spending anything. That's the saddest part of it, really. It's like it's... Uh, as, the, <laughs> as the guys we hung out with said, Ed, Johnny, everything's on the arm. You know, you don't have to pay for anything. Uh, you know, I remember we moved down to Baltimore. A couple of guys came down and said, Johnny, you got no problems in Baltimore. This is an open city. You have no issues. And, uh, you know, so, so, so it was just part of the entertainment culture of the markets to have guys like this around to, to provide whatever was needed. But just so, so we've got a, a sense of, like, how debaucherous it was, you know, what, what like, were you doing a couple of grams a, a week or, like, what were you drinking, you know, that sort of stuff? When I was first in the market, I, uh, I got transferred over to the London office of uh, the small bank that I was working for. And uh, the head trader uh, was an old, uh, Brit old uh, I thought he was old, I was 22. So and he looked at me when he got there and he said, you're with me. 
like, what's that mean? He's like, you're with Mason next to me. And I traded with him all morning, and then we would go to the bar and, and, at lunch. And, you know, the London market um, is open and very active as the, the Asian market closes. Then it takes a pause until the New York guys can get in, get in, and we trade again. So I'm sitting in London, and the very first day, we go to this pub where six of us stand around, and nobody leaves till everyone buys a round. It was like the, it was the ritual. So, uh, so we would just get blotto at lunch and then go back and trade. And then, and then we'd often trade a lot more in the afternoons than in the mornings because it was um, because the New York market was much more active. And then, of course, after work, we would go back to that same bar and do the same darn thing, stand around the circle, and everybody buy a round. And then we'd be out for we'd be out for a curry and a couple of bottles of wine. And after that, is like, well, let's go to the club, and the club was the the gambling spot, you know. And then we had this funny thing called Barbican cars that you could call, you had a little number, and they would come and get you wherever they, and they knew, they, they knew what to expect of us. Like they knew they had to pour us into their seats and take us up to their houses and stuff. So that was pretty much a nightly ritual. We'd do that. And then, uh, and then uh, actually one of the first weeks I was there on a Saturday morning, they called me up like, oh, we'll be over in 10 minutes to pick, pick you up. I'm like, what, what, what do you mean? So we're going on the ferry to Calais, uh, in France because the liquor over there is, is much cheaper so we make a day of it we get our l- weekly liquor needs like I haven't been home <laughs> sober you know 20 minutes in the last two weeks but that was the ritual every Saturday <laughs> okay and then, and then this culture this kind of culture of, of just uh, hedonism kind of just continued throughout throughout in, you know into Baltimore as well yeah I mean it really it really peaked when I worked in Manhattan um you know, Manhattan's like a playground, man. It's like uh, it's a sign that God is from God that you have too much money. I think I really, I really couldn't handle it there because uh, just there was e- e- there was no time when the party wasn't going at Manhattan. You could go out in the middle of the day or the middle of the night, and there would be places for you to hang out and drink and dark spots where you could do whatever you wanted. It was acceptable for uh, your brokers and your fellow bankers to spend really large amounts of money on expense accounts. Um, and no one really gave a damn, you know, I, the amount of money we would drop on wine. You know, it's some of the craziest things. Like, I know a lot of great wines, and I've drank a lot of great wines, but I don't think I remember, remember very many of them because I was already way drunk before the dinner game in most cases. I think I've done a similar thing, but with just heaps of bad wine. Uh, anyway, I, I want to return to this thing about intake because I, I think it puts it in really concrete terms how drinking and and taking drugs affected the sort of decisions you were making like were you drinking every single day um you know i was drinking every day and and uh you know we buy drugs like in eight balls is what you keep in your pocket but at parties and stuff there was limitless amounts i can't i i actually to honestly honestly i really don't want to quantify it uh it just makes me sick to be honest with you um but there was never any limit could you could you tell me about the like maybe the the craziest sort of downward spiral party that you went to during that period? Yeah, we actually went we went to um, a fight, a Holyfield fight, and uh, stayed in the palace. Um, it's just the craziest place. We were at, like we were on the floor below the the boxer and his whole entourage, and it's just one of these just obscene places where you check in and they. They give you these business cards and say like John Rusnak in residence, the palace. <laughs> yeah, I think it's meant so you can get located if you're out drunk and stupid and about to get rolled. Um, but yeah, they basically had everything you know, every carnal desire <laughs> easily fulfilled in a place like that. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's move along to some broader learnings here. And I think you've talked a lot about how you were treated as a guy who broke the law. But then, 
you know, obviously you are rich, you are privileged. Uh, what what do you think you learned about how the judicial system treats a white collar criminal over, say, just someone who has less resources? I think the judicial system is rooted in great unfairness, and I don't think that's like there's a there's a cabal of government officials who intentionally discriminate against people. It just comes about from our current thinking. You know, I mean, we sit in a town like Baltimore, which is. Um, you know, the Baltimore Metroplex area is racially mixed, but also uh, very segregated. A lot of the guys we deal with now, they're, you know, they might have robbed a convenience store or, or, or you know, carjacking or done something bad, obviously. But there's no sense that they're going to get out. I mean, they're going to sit for three months, six months, nine months, a year until the trial comes around with very little contact with their lawyer, very little um uh, interaction with the court that allows them to understand what's going on. And that's going to drive them into a level of depression that causes the violence inside the jails. Um, you know, meanwhile, I got, I wait, I was out on, you know, on, on a recognizance. We had assets and I could have easily left. Um, I had no intention of leaving. I think they knew that I was prepared to own up to it, but, but it was an experience that showed me the vast difference in how people were treated. So why is this? You know, why is it that rich guys who steal millions get treated with so much more compassion than poor guys who just hold up a convenience store? Well, because they have good legal representation is one of the first things. You know, like you have an excellent lawyer, you realize that um, you don't have to be as fearful of them as you as, as you might be. When you're just a kid and you don't know anybody and you have a panel attorney or a public defender, they might be trying their best to do right by you, but they're overwhelmed with cases and they don't see the kids and they don't know who they are. And um, they might, a lot of times the kid will go for his initial hearing and he'll meet the lawyer five minutes before he, he comes in front of the judge. So there's a sense the system can push them around and hold them, and, uh, and they have no advocates that have influence. So I guess it's these kind of insights that have motivated the work you do now um, in prisons. Can you tell us what you do and, and how the whole thing's organized? Well, we have four people on staff and about 40 volunteers, and um, we are in prisons every single day. And this is um, Uncuffed Ministries? Uncuffed Ministries, yeah. We, we serve juveniles who are incarcerated in adult facilities. So we're coming alongside kids in a surprising way to them. You know, the typical jail ministry in the U.S. is somebody who hands out Bibles and tracts and, you know, holds a Bible up against a kid and hopes that it hope, in hopes that it'll work by osmosis, you know. Um, I, I don't think that you have any right to share the truth of your faith with anyone without relationship. But through building relationships and meeting them where they are, uh, meeting their current needs, like, you know, hey, have you signed up for a lawyer? Uh, do you know anybody? You know, can I help you connect to, you, to a decent lawyer? Um, are you taking any medicines? Do you need any medicine? Are you on, like, medical treatments or anything? Like, have you spoken to your mom? Do you want us to call her? You start to build these relationships. You know, I'll go in sometimes and the guys want to gamble. I'm not going to gamble with them for money or anything, but um, I'm happy to gamble push-ups with them, which they always think is pretty funny because I'm an old fat guy now, but they don't know that I'm a really good card player. <laughs> so <laughs> I get a lot of time. They do a lot of push-ups when they play cards with me. Do they often get distracted by by the the $700 million thing as opposed to like the, the message that you're trying to present? Yeah. Yeah, I made a really big mistake a couple of years ago. I brought in a magazine article about my case, um, which was, uh, it was in Inc. Magazine. Uh, you may have seen it, like, about the things I learned and, and my recommendations to other people about how to conduct themselves. And it was really about, like, humility and uh, intentionality and faith. And But, you know, that first line described the crime with the number amount in it. And it just, I haven't brought that in 
since, but uh, the reputation is enduring. The kids really cling to that number. You'll get to a prison and they'll be like, hey, there's the guy who embezzled $700 million. He's a, he's, like, he's a gangster. He's awesome. Yeah, you still got it. You still got it. Yeah, right. Yeah, you still got it, right? You know, and I'm like, listen, man. I don't have it, and I don't want it. You know. Yeah. Now you make you make it sound like you've gone through a, a sort of hundred uh, percent ethical transformation. Do you do you ever still look at your old buddies who are in finance with you, and they're all living in their mansions, and they got their yachts and stuff? And you know, do do you feel a little bit jealous sometimes? Sure. Yeah. And it's not a hundred percent change. I just don't think that's possible. I don't think people could live on this earth and be without sin or without desires. Uh, would you describe yourself as a as a good person? No. I wish I could. I mean, I, you know, I really struggle sometimes in like what I'm doing. Sometimes I'm doing good things in order to rationalize in my own mind that I'm a good guy. And that's exactly what I don't want to be doing. I really don't want to do that. Like I really, I, I, my desire is to not worry what people think about me. Do you, do you think this desire to impress people or to be liked, do you think that motivated a, a lot of the stuff that you did? Yeah. I mean, I was so arrogant that I think the, the main person I was trying to impress was myself. You know, I really wanted to be the quarterback on the football team, and I was pretty close to the water boy, you know. And a lot of that stuff generated in my own mind this sense of um, lack of worthiness, especially when I got to the street. Most of the kids' dads were, you know, very rich and, and, and in certain positions. Um, so, so, yeah, I've always struggled with that. I continue to struggle with it. I mean, you know, I, I like everybody, I want to have friends and I want to have people like me. Most of my friends don't really care. Like, I... I don't think they give a darn whether I'm impressive or not. They're really glad to see I'm doing what I'm doing and I'm happy every day and uh, and that I'm trying my best to do what's right. Yeah. Do you, so, I mean, what advice do you give then? Do you, do you say to people, don't aspire? Or do you say, uh, just accept your faults endlessly? I mean, where, where do you draw the line on this stuff? Well, I mean, a lot of the stuff I say to my son is the thing I say to the boys as well. You know, he's just graduated from college and he's down in Atlanta. I said one of the things is, like, don't allow people to define you and don't define yourself by the worst things that you've done in life. So if you made a consequential mistake, you have to not only ask for forgiveness, but you have to be willing to forgive yourself. The things that we intended for evil, the things that have happened to us, the tribulations we've gone through, the mistakes we've made, the consequences we sit in, those can actually be used for good. Um, I, they have been used in, in my case. I mean, the street cred I had with the guys because I've been in jail and the compassion that was generated by, by being incarcerated, I think has turned into something that's positive. It's not, I'm not saying that I'm life-changing for the boys, but I think sharing this message, this life-changing message with them is, is, is effective. Do you think you had to go to prison to learn this, learn this lesson? Uh, I think I did. I hope, I hope most people don't. You know, that's one of the things that, you know, I'm often, uh, I often have people referred to me when people really screw their lives up, you know, because then when they hear their sto- my story, they don't still feel so bad about themselves, you know. And some guys, their their failing is, you know, they cheated on their wife and their wife's going to leave them or, you know, they were unethical in their business practices and now the business might be closing or, um, you know, just a myriad of sins that don't often lead to prison. But I think that if you, if, if in life there's a time where you are, knocked down, pulverized, as I shared you about that Hebrew word, um, and and even humiliated, that you can turn that humiliation into humility and that you can stand back up. I mean, that, that's what I really, I really want to do is I just, I just want to try my best to walk my head up and say, yes, you know, I, I did something terrible, but I'm not fully defined by that. Yeah. 
Yeah, John. I think that's I think that's a really important message. I think it's it's uh, sorely lacking in a lot of people's lives, and uh, you've definitely said all that stuff that I can really relate to as well. I've been to jail, but I've uh, you know I've done my sh- my share of shitty things as well. So look, I let we're going to wrap it up there. But I I want to say a big big thanks for for sharing your story. It's been uh, it's it's been really useful. Well, great. I I, uh, I know that I'm called to do it. You know, I don't I don't always like to do it and. Sometimes when I hear the 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 byproduct on the radio, I think, oh, I should have I should have learned to shut my mouth. But yeah, I know yeah. that sometimes it's it's a story or a testimony that that attracts people's attention, and you know if it helps somebody, I guess that's that's good. Thanks for listening. For more episodes of Extremes, just go to vice.com or iTunes. This episode of Extremes was hosted by me, Julian Morgans. It was produced by Anu Hasbold, edited by Jeff O'Connor and Dom Chiyuka, and it was also mixed and mastered by Jeff O'Connor. Our series producer is Katie Roberts, and our post-production coordinator is Pia Caridi. Thanks for listening to the show. Next week, we're speaking to an Antarctic adventurer who was hit by an avalanche and flushed down a crevasse. He survived... And we're going to talk to him about what he learned from this experience. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.